Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. To all who shall see these presents, greetings. On behalf of Marine Corps University, the Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Brute Crew Lex Center for Innovation and Future Warfare, welcome back to the Brutecast. Our series designed to connect the world to the warfighter and PME with the best and innovative and creative thought. I'm your host, Major Nate Janikin, Operations Officer at the Kulak Center. Before we begin, please remember that all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Kulak Center, Marine Corps University, United States Marine Corps, or any other agency of the U.S. government. We will also be recording this webcast for the benefit of those in our community of interest who could not join us today, so we ask that you keep your own webcams off to help us stream smoothly. At the conclusion of our discussion, we will have a question and answer session. So if you have a question, just type it into the group chat and I'll go through them in the order received. So strategy is the ability to reach your desired ends by stringing together ways to effectively use your means. From a military standpoint, it's the highest level of warfare and is typically linked with the overall goals of a nation. The operational level of war links tactics to strategy. Individual operations, whether sequential or simultaneous, are the steps taken to reach those ends, but the military doesn't do it alone. It's not, mm, it's dime. The other elements of national power, diplomacy, information, and economics help play into the overall strategy of the nation. Every nation has its own culture of decision-making, and today we're gonna focus on Russia. So our guest today is Dr. Victoria Clement. She's the Russian military and political strategy subject matter expert here at the Brute Kulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare. With their experience developing, executing, and presenting educational materials to nonprofit, academic, diplomatic, and U.S. Department of Defense communities, Dr. Clement has taught at the Naval Postgraduate School, the University of Illinois, and the U.S. Foreign Service Institute. She also taught in both Russia and Turkmenistan. Her book, Learning to Become Turkmen, Literacy, Language, and Power, 1914 to 2014, was the first book in English to be based on archival research in Turkmenistan. Her research has been supported with awards from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Council for East European and Eurasian Research, the Open Society Institute, and the Ohio State University, where she received her PhD in Eurasian, Russian, and East European history. Uh, so Dr. Clement, welcome uh, to the podcast, uh, to the broadcast, um, and we'll go ahead and we'll kick it over to you for any opening comments. I will begin by noting that um, Ukrainians are experiencing a very difficult winter right now, and the Russians who are fighting them are not faring too well either. Um, one person who is not suffering this winter is Vladimir Putin. So his, his approval ratings, as I will show, have remained fairly steady since Russia perpetrated its full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. And Support for Putin may surprise some people, considering the degree of national international outrage and um, the exigencies of war that they're experiencing. But Putin just has not come under the type of pressure that one might expect. So I want to discuss some key factors and concepts that I think help explain the Russian leader's endurance. Um, one of those is strategic culture, which is now today in Russia combined with Putin's agenda or what I'm calling Putinism. Russia's strategic culture is essentially uh, one way of a strategic culture, I should say, um, is the intersection of a state's cultural qualities with its behavior on an international stage. So I have listed here um, a couple of books 
that are by MCU Press, uh, a book and a, and a journal article by MCU Press, um, which are easily accessible for Marines. And I also made a note at the bottom of some other scholars who work on these this to this topic. So we've got Jeannie Johnson, who works on strategic culture generally, Dmitry Adamski, who works on Russian strategic culture, who is a, a big influence on my thinking, and Oscar Johnson, which uh, who writes on Russian ways of war. There's also Jack Snyder, Colin Gray. A lot of people have worked on strategic culture and um, have brought have looked more closely at Russian strategic culture. So I can recommend these two, um, this article and this book here by Matthew Slater and um, Tasha F. Purcell and McLaughlin, if you wanna know more about this topic. Okay, so what I'm gonna talk about today includes uh, an, an examination of a couple of um, uh, concepts, terminology, and some uh, ways that Russia is interacting with the international community. So I'm gonna talk about Russia and especially the Kremlin as a besieged fortress, talk about NATO encroachment, how Russia, the, the Kremlin's attitude toward this perceived encroachment. Um, I'm gonna talk about the abuse of history. Uh, then I'm gonna talk a little bit about the Ruskimir or the Russian world. And Finally, the fear of color revolutions. The Kremlin really fears color revolutions because they have the potential to contribute to instability and especially domestic instability, which is something that they um, want to avoid at the Kremlin. So we have a picture here of the Kremlin uh, in Russian, that's Kreml. And the physical space of the Kremlin really epitomizes um, this idea of fortress Russia or the besieged fortress, which is this idea that Russians have turned to throughout history um, when they've been um, put upon or besieged by the Mongols, the, the Napoleonic French uh, in the 19th century, the Nazis in the 20th century, or in the eyes of Moscow today by NATO. So it's a historic myth that um, causes Russia to feel, you know, put upon, beleaguered, battered, and basically victimized. And um, the benefits of Russia's focus on this historical uh, experience and these communal memories are that they work with the state of affairs today in which the West is opposing Russia. Um, for example, it this idea of the besieged fortress corroborates the view of Russia as recurrently under threat from outsiders. And who are those outsiders today? The West and NATO. <clears throat> so let's talk about NATO specifically. Future Kiwi here. The current slide shows a map of Europe with current NATO members color-coded based on their position on Ukraine's admission to NATO. Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia are dark blue, denoting support for immediate admission. Sweden and Bosnia and Herzegovina are light blue as in the process of NATO admission, and all other nations are regular blue, showing that they are for admission, but after the war. Russian leaders, uh, especially Putin, accused the United States and NATO of repeatedly disregarding promises that were made in the early 1990s uh, to refrain from expanding the alliance eastward. So these leaders view NATO's enlargement as an intrusion that Russia is still dealing with today. And especially since um, Ukraine has joined the alliance, has applied to join the alliance. Um, 
So uh, Ukraine's President Zelensky submitted a formal application for Ukraine to join NATO in fall of 2023, and he's been pushing for an accelerated admission process to um, join the EU. So as um, as NATO over the over recent years has has um, moved into what was once the Warsaw Pact and the so the Soviet uh, bloc. Russia has become more and more perturbed, and we see in this map here just how close um, the dark blue uh, uh, countries in the, on the map are to the border of Russia, on the border of Russia. So um, this is a picture of Vladimir Putin at the Victory Day Parade in Moscow, which is, takes place on May 9th, um, now annually, where Russia uses the day to mark the victory over Nazi Germany in World War II. So this is 2022's picture. Um, they, uh, I'm showing this photo for two reasons. The first is to show the ribbon of St. George, which Putin is wearing. You can see it easily on his lapel. Um, and, and most of the other people around him are also wearing. And you can um, always spot the St. George ribbon because of the orange and black stripes that are meant to evoke St. George's conquest of Christianity over evil. Um, this ribbon originated at the time of Catherine the Great, but it was revived by Putin in the mid 2000s to symbolize and recall the Soviet Union's great victory in World War II. So Putin is using this uh, ribbon and the, the colors, the symbols of it, to arouse memories of Soviet victory over Nazi Germany. And these memories are highly unifying elements of Putinism. And you can see that I've got in this slide here a notation of then and now. Um, then, meaning World War II, uh, 27 million people died in the Soviet Union and they were fighting actual Nazis. So there's a real memory to latch onto there. There's a real um, history to, to, to take up. Um, now what is being um, taken up is an alleged uh, aggression on the part of in Ukraine by Ukrainians on Russian speakers in that country. So the second reason I wanna show this photo is because Putin has managed to persuade at least um, some Russians that his special military operation in Ukraine is an extension of World War II. So to that end, Putin stirs up images of Nazism to malign Ukraine's leadership and to buttress what we have to call his ridiculous accusations of genocide against the Russian-speaking population of Ukraine. And I'll I do believe that this is a highly um, choreographed photo with Putin flanked by heroes of the Great Patriotic War to kind of uh, underscore his intention, uh, uh, pointing out the symbolism. We're calling these heroic feats in the USSR. This is a photograph of a of a book from a bookstore in Russia, recently taken, and you see here the eleventh uh, grade history book which is entitled The History of Russia and the World. And I wanted to show this picture because it 
it speaks to the ways that the state, the, the Russian state is, is reiterating the myths that Putin uses to prop up and legitimize his regime. And these, these myths um, include things such as downgrading the war in Ukraine to a special military operation um, and Russia's historical claims to Kyiv. So we see that um, Putinism is not limited to the adult population, but is being brought into the into the schools. This is a photo of uh, Vladimir Solovyov. He's an influential Russian propagandist and a, a, a popular television personality. And he is here promoting a version of this history on his television show. So he's holding up uh, one of these new history books and using his platform to, su to support Putinism. So this is being widely discussed in uh, Russian social media and um, and public space. And on, for this last point on history, I have a picture of um, of Putin in a classroom teaching a group of students, maybe middle school students. And to accompany these new history books and these new history lessons, there are extracurricular activities for students and there are new civics courses. And these are all designed to introduce youth to patriotic thinking. But really what it amounts to is a, is a nationalistic indoctrination. So we see in this photo, Putin is symbolically teaching the first new lesson uh, in September, 2023, when these, these books were first um, used in the classrooms. So I tend to think of him not only as the president, but also as the historian in chief. The next concept um, that I wanna talk about is Ruski Mir. And Mir means world, it can mean community, it can also mean peace, but here it means world, the Russian world. And the use of the term Ruski Mir underscores an aim to promote and preserve Russian language and culture. So we see a picture here of um, some young people playing with some big blocks that have Russian letters on them, Cyrillic letters. And I put this photo in particular because the thinking around the term Ruski Mir is linked directly to language, to the Russian language. It's not, um, the idea is that those who speak Russian come to think in Russian and eventually may act Russian. So because of that, the thinking goes, Russia has a duty to defend not only the ethnic Russians within its borders, but also ethnic Russians outside of its borders and even those who speak Russian. And so we see a, a link here to the justification for invading Eastern Ukraine, where Putin claims um, a genocide was being perpetrated against the Russian speakers um, in that country. This slide is a little bit tougher to see, so I'm gonna read a little bit of it for you. Um, it's, a, it's a slide that is entitled Color Revolutions, and it, let me start by saying what I think a color revolution is. It's basically, in short, um, a a grassroots initiated effort to change a government to a more democratic system of government. So this term came into use after the revolutions in post-Soviet space, especially um, Georgia 2003, Ukraine 2004, Kyrgyzstan 2005, the rose, orange, and tulip revolutions respectively. 
And at the top of the slide, it says in English, um, a color revolution is a form of nonviolent change of power in a country by outside manipulation of the protest potential of the population in conjunction with political, economic, humanitarian, and other non-military measures. And what I want to underscore here is the phrase in the middle of the sentence that says by outside manipulation, because the implication is that the, the implication here is that the West foments revolutions to instigate problems around the world, which it then takes advantage of. And why do I think this particular slide is implying the West? Well, this was a slide used um, in 2014 by General Valery Gerasimov, who is the chief of the general staff of the armed forces of the Russian Federation. And he spoke on a conference at a conference on the topic of revolution, color revolutions. The um, Center for Strategic and International Studies made these slides available. And the slide shows, in my opinion, the degree to which Moscow is haunted by the specter of color revolutions. So as I mentioned, Russian leaders fear a, upheaval as um, the potential to undermine stability at home. And although Moscow has, has had domestic instability basically under control through intense repression and the arrest of members of the op opposition. They still feel what color revolutions or what they call controlled chaos. So we know that Russia is in Ukraine. Uh, we have a pretty good idea what its military goals are. Let's talk about its political goals and the, the um, underpinnings of the actions taken there. Russia made a couple of demands, both on Ukrainians and on um, NATO, the US, the West. The, the demands made on Ukraine, which persist, um, are first denazification. So they are, Moscow is accusing the Ukrainian leadership of promoting Nazism and um, it demands that the Ukrainians remove anyone who entered politics from the 2014 Euromaidan revolution um, until now to be removed from politics. And basically the aim there is to decapitate the Ukrainian leadership. Second big point is they is Moscow demands that um, Kiev submit to demilitarization, Ukraine submit to demilitarization, and that entails abandoning um, weapons that threaten Russia. The third big ask or demand is that Ukraine recognize territorial revision of Crimea, Donbass, and the Sea of Azov. And by territorial revision, Moscow means give them to Russia. Now, in as far as the West is concerned, demands were made um, on the West as well, and these have been reiterated uh, again and again by, by Putin and the, the leadership. So um, Russia demands that the United States and NATO stop expanding the alliance. They also demand that um, Russia that, that NATO seek Russian consent for certain NATO deployments and remove nuclear weapons from Europe. And we see a picture here at the bottom of the slide of 
um, Russian Minister of Foreign Affairs, Sergei Lavrov, making such demands. As I said, these, these demands have been reiterated again and again. I want to just point out, sticking in the thinking about NATO, that Putin and, and the Russian leadership know that the West's greatest vulnerability is a weakened resolve. And it's war weariness is a major threat to Western unity and support for Ukraine, as we are seeing now in parts of Europe and, and in the US. Um, questions about uh, support to Ukraine are um, in the news regularly. So Putin knows his best bet uh, to breaking up Western unity is to make that crisis as costly as possible. And I, I think that's what he's doing. Let's go talk about what this is costing Russia. So um, the first thing I want to point out is that in the center of the, um, the center picture is a picture of the North Korean leader with who told Putin, North Korean leader and Putin, um, who told him that the two countries would, quote, be together in the fight against imperialism. And this is another way that Russia's war is depicted. It's not only a fight against Ukraine, but it's against Western imperialism. We see on the left a picture of um, the drones that Iran has been supplying. So this is another key ally of Russia, supplying in large numbers. And on the right, we see mobilized citizens. Russia has been mobilizing, but they're inexperienced and they're mostly untrained. And while there's a level of support for the war in Russia, there's a lack of support for, for further mobilization and demands to, there are demands coming from, especially mothers and wives, to rotate individual soldiers. So I don't think we're going to see a mobilization until after the 2024 presidential election in March in Russia. And in fact, however, we do see critics accusing the government of a, um, a hidden mobilization already effectively in place in the form of more aggressive recruitment drives in Russia's regions. And we see, for example, efforts to get migrant workers um, from Central Asia to enlist in exchange for citizenship. So it, it used to be that a person could get citizenship in Russia after serving in the military for a year. Now they're um, becoming immediately eligible. So Putin, Putin and, the, and the leadership has faced some problems in this war. Although he's had some problems, there is still a degree of popular support. I know it's hard to see the details on this particular slide and, and it's also written in Russian at the top, but it says, um, this is a poll taken by the Levada Center. And the Levada Center is an independent entity in Russia. It does not depend on the Russian government. It conducts surveys. And we have to acknowledge that while the conditions represent less than perfect results in an autocratic Russia where it's illegal to call out the illegal, uh, the Russian aggression in Ukraine, um, we, so we have to put an asterisk by these data but I still think we can see some trends. And so this um, survey was taken between February, 2022 and September, 2023. And what the question that was asked was, do you support or not support the Russian military um, in, in Ukraine? And you can see um, easily the blue 
shows a majority saying that they support. We've got far more than 50% saying they support this, um, the war in Ukraine, not calling it a war, but the special operation in Ukraine. Let's go to the next slide, please. Um, we see here Putin's approval ratings over uh, since the beginning of his taking office in 1999, uh, becoming president in 2000, um, till December of 2022. And you see um, the circles show, uh, the first circle shows um, in 2014 when Russia seized Crimea, a spike in his approval ratings and a drop in his disapproval. And again, another big spike when the um, full-scale invasion of Ukraine began in February of 2022. So we see some, um, he's, he's, he has had fairly steady approval ratings, but we see even greater spikes at these times when he undertakes these, um, these forms of aggression against outside entities. Let's look at the 2024 budget. So how is, how is Moscow approaching the next year of war? Well, for the first time in the history of modern Russia, defense spending will be greater than spending in the social sphere. So we see a 40% increase in the budget um, in the in the uh, in defense spending in the budget. So again, this is in Russian, so it it might be hard to read, but some of the other um, categories of spending that are shown here for comparison include Department of Housing and Utilities, healthcare, education, um, environmental protection, even um, public services. So. The, the top line is Nacionalnaya Obrona, Ob, Ob, Oborona, the uh, defense budget and national defense. And you can see the dramatic difference between um, spending on that and other categories of spending. Just take a moment to, um, to and think of an example of how this budget is being used. So. In November of 23, Putin signed into, a, into law a bill to expand the Russian army by um, 170,000 soldiers. Putin needs more people in this fight. But as I mentioned, he also knows that mobilization is unpopular, and so he is hesitating. Um, this is a quote, uh, a quotation um, uh, that reads, the increase in the strength of the army is due to growing threats to our country linked with the special military operation and the continuing expansion of NATO. So we see this, again, this conflation of issues in Ukraine with the, with the perceived threat from NATO, this, the, this perceived threat from outsiders against the besieged um, fortress. And, um, this quotation comes from the Ministry of Defense. So uh, they put a post on social media that said this and went on to focus on the threat from NATO, referencing what it called the alliance's aggressive activities. 
So I'm going to stop there and open it up to questions. I think one of the things that I thought about, you know, when you were talking, showed the picture of Putin in the classroom, you're teaching mm -hmm. the lesson and you talked about uh, educational indoctrination. You know, I, I'm thinking about you know, pictures that I remember seeing from Soviet Russia of high school kids, you know, learning to assemble and disassemble the AK-47 as one of their you know, classrooms. And, you know, they show a picture of one of the rooms in uh, uh, near Chernobyl that still has the, the times written out of, you know, how fast they could do it. So how similar is kind of their thinking and the way they're going about things? between the Russian Federation and Soviet Russia? Because a lot of it seems very similar. Well, I think there are going to be some similarities in part because they're both modern entities. So I, this is an interesting question and, and I wanna shout out to my students here who asked me, do I think that Putin more resembles Peter the Great or more resembles Stalin? And um, the, the fact is that both the current Russian uh, Federation and the Soviet system were modern entities. And so they're going to share some things in common um, more so than say the time of Peter the Great. But the other thing that they have in, in common is that they're very top down, uh, what they call power, you know, possessing a power vertical uh, under Putin. And, um, there's a there's a there's a cult of personality. There's a figurehead who's running the show and is um, very visible, highly visible, and who is relying on a great deal of symbolism. So whether that symbolism is um, based in uh, historical memory, whether it's um, a physical thing like the like the St. George ribbon or whether it's a statue of Jerzinski, who who was the head of the KGB, whose statue they brought back a few years ago. Um, we see that symbols are are used by both um, in, in both of these modern entities. So I see I see a great deal of uh, of similarity. And and then when it comes to the students, um a, a a much greater amount of state interference and state influence in education than you would see in most western societies um and so that that speaks to the to the content of the books the um, extracurricular activities the students are undertaking and also the um classes that the new lessons are being taught. And then when we talk about, uh, you know, they're using denazification, the unification of Russian speaking peoples. Um, how much of that was the Soviet Union doing as, as well? So like, you know, when you, when you said, you know, Russia wants to know when NATO is going to do exercises, Mm -hmm. you know, was the same communication happening between NATO and the Warsaw Pact countries? Was the Soviet Union putting up as big a deal with, you know, neighboring countries, you know, joining the NATO, joining NATO or potentially joining NATO? Um, yeah, that would be my, my question, I guess, is. 
So let me just make sure I understand the question correctly. So um, was NATO was NATO and the Soviet the Kremlin um, communicating regularly. Um, there was a there was a a degree of um, communication about exercises, um, but then you mentioned Nazism, and I'm not sure how that fit in. I, I think I kind of went on on two different tangents. I, I think mm -hmm. the uh, you know, the the Putin's focus on NATO and the expansion of NATO closer towards Russian borders, you know, mm -hmm. you know, large Russia, because it was always bordering against countries that were, you know, whether they were forcefully aligned or aligned with Russia, mm -hmm. uh, you know, were they making as big a deal about those NATO neighbors as they seem to now, you know, especially with countries like uh, Norway uh, and some other folks, uh, Finland, the Baltic nations, Ukraine, uh, you know, Sweden, kind of well, edging you know, towards NATO. The big issue here is uh, it's not just the fact of NATO and not just who is joining NATO, but there is a, there is an argument that Moscow puts forth that they were lied to, that their leadership was lied to by um, NATO and specifically by um, American representatives in in the nineteen around nineteen ninety on multiple occasions, where they were promised um, that uh, NATO would not expand any further eastward. So this is a big academic debate, and it's a big um, there's a there's a lot of literature on this. Uh, looking at diplomatic um, uh, documents and memoirs, and you have um, James Baker, uh, George H.W. Bush, uh, you have German um, leadership, others who, who have weighed in on this um, over the years. And um, Moscow insists that they were told that, that um, NATO would not expand any further east after they, after German unification. And whether there's a mirroring going on here, whether they, um, they themselves would uh, have lied if they had been in that position, whether the Americans lied, that's up for debate. But the, the point is that there, it's being used still to this day as this um, explanation and justification for activities in Ukraine. Okay, so that makes sense to me, I guess. Yeah, I was kind of not necessarily confused, but I found it interesting that it, it seemed to me like a new argument that mm. I don't remember reading about, you know, these kind of same arguments then as well. But I, you know, I did, I wasn't aware that you know, there was an expectation that they wouldn't go any further east. So I can mm -hmm. see how, you know, some of those nations joining NATO post 90, 91, you know, could be seen as a violation of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, and then it, there was a, there was a, um, a, um, a, a, a meeting in 2007 where Putin really spelled this out 
as his as a, as a major beef that he had against the alliance and um, has just continued to, to beat that drum uh, ever since. So we'll go to the chat for the next question. So Albert asks, uh, with ongoing reports of a crisis in egg supply, popular backlash, backlash against celebrities, uh, infrastructure failures, and Ukrainian long-range drone strikes, uh, what sort of post-invasion new normal does Putin seek to shape? And how does he do so, aside from the school indoctrination and other case studies that you showed in the, the presentation? So what would, what would, what is new normal post-invasion in Russia is what I yep. understand. There's a, there's a, a big cha changes to the economy. They're putting the economy on a war footing for starters. And that's, that's going to be normal for a while. And in fact, depending on how things go over the next year, Russia could increase its defense spending even more than it already has. Um, that pulls away from social spending. Um, and then there's the, the question of mobilization and the, the feelings among families of, of people who are serving in the Russian military that they need to be rotated or or released from service, which is not happening anytime soon. So there's a frustration. There's a um, there's an there's an anti mobilization stance. There's a there's a mobilization weariness in Russia. There's I believe that there is a fair amount of support for the war, but there's a there's not ironically. Um, a strong support for mobilization. So they 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 support Putin's ideas, but not their family members going to fight in the war. So you have things you have entities like um, I, I guess it's a social media group, a kind of a group of um, mothers and, and wives who have created this put damoy, uh, bring them home, come home. Uh, get home and um they want um as i said they want rotation of the troops so that's part of the new normal um what else the schools i think are only going to become more intense i think this this nationalistic teaching is only going to become uh more intense um among the the, the youth um there's been a little bit of a, there used to be a, a youth group called Nashi, which was very, um, it was fairly vitriolic and, and, and it was very, very, um, very right wing radical. And um, that seems to have closed down, but you still see the students being pulled into the, the larger conversation. And Albert had a, a follow-on question with that: is, is what what developments post a, the greatest risk to what you know Putin is looking for a new normal? You mentioned mobilization as one of them, but are there others as well? Risks to Putin's plans, risk to Putin's intentions. Um, well, if there's any change in in his uh, 
or, or further change in his access to, um, to money. So if he, if he is, if, if there's a, a, a dramatic drop in petrodollars, uh, for him, for him to, to use, um, if there's a, a major finance, global financial crisis, like we saw in 2008, for example, um, yeah, that could be, that could be really problematic for Putin. Those are big risks. So he is, this is a, um, this is a situation that really can't be sustained for, for forever. It's, it's, it, it's depending on a lot of spending. It's depending on a lot of, um, a lot of smoke and mirrors on Putin's part and he can't sustain this forever. And, and if he doesn't have the money as, as you see with the situation, the complaining about the egg prices and the, and the deficits of eggs, um, in Russia, they're, they're kind of eggs have become kind of symbolic of, of complaints. Um, those are risks to Putin's position. And uh, does this situation stop with Putin or are we going to get a sequel to Animal Farm? Mm. So one of the questions that I ask in my class is, do we, do we, the West, do we have a Russia problem or do we have a Putin problem? And I think that this is not just a Putin problem. Um, he has, he has an infrastructure that is, that he relies on that is supporting him. He has this power vertical. Um, and there's a, and there's a, um, as I said, I, I think there's a, there's support, um, uh, popular, some popular support for the, for the war. So he's not alone. Uh, if Putin were to, to disappear tomorrow, would these problems go away? Perhaps there wouldn't, perhaps the next leader wouldn't want to wage war in Ukraine, but that doesn't mean they're going to be a Democrat. That doesn't mean they're going to be a liberal leader. Doesn't mean they're going to allow for opposition um, in the country. Um, so I don't see life changing for the Russian populace uh, dramatically. And I don't see Russia becoming less of a threat uh, on the on the world stage. If there's a completely new leader, um, there may be a there may be a a, a a lessening of the acuteness of the threat that Russia poses, but it is still going to be it's not going to be a liberal democracy. So Albert uh, asks, how does the Russian strategic outlook? shape how Russia conducts its outward-facing information warfare campaign. Uh, and he mentions denazification, biolabs, or the Russian interpretation of multipolarity. And I think he asked it in a much better way than I had thought of originally when I had my separate thought about denazification. The outward-facing information warfare campaigns like denazification, right, or the Russian interpretation of multipolarity. A another one of the big themes that Putin has been repeating is that the 
that 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 the world has been unipolar that that the world is being dictated to by the united states that nato uh, is has more power than it ought to and there should be a multipolar world in which russia's great power status needs to be recognized once again so um putin is putin uh, is not saying it's a it's it should be a bipolar situation that he's not saying it should be just russia and the united states or russia and nato but that and he's recognizing china he's recognizing india as um, influential actors on the geopolitical stage, but he wants Russia's great power status to be acknowledged. And so um, it's almost, uh, you know, we, it was, it hasn't been that many years since we had a big focus in the U.S. on great power competition. And I think that that suited um, Putin just fine because it, 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 brought Russia into the conversation as a, as great, you know, as a, as a great power competitor. And, um, he wants that superpower status again. I mean, they are, um, striving for that recognition. And do you think those outward facing information campaigns are working or is it, is that outward facing really an inward facing because i'm not sure anybody actually believes that they need to denazificate ukraine mm -hmm. well i think there are some russian supporters who might think that but um the outward facing information and these these campaigns are um they may not they may not be finding favor uh, in the international arena, but he has got our attention, right? I mean, the entire Western community has has um, joined together, has unified to oppose him. So he's had some success in attaining what he's been aiming for, which is this recognition of, of his status and, and the status of, of Russia. So there's been some, um, I think that some of his campaigns have had a, a kind of success for him. Uh, and I think the last question that I have, and I know we left off uh, some slides, but I know there was you know, a cooling of, of relationships between China and the Soviet Union. Uh, and I've heard you know, some reports of Chinese munitions being supplied to the Russians. Uh, you know, how is that relationship uh, now post collapse of the Soviet Union and with Putin in charge? You know, China has its its own objectives. Um, and this might be an interesting conversation to one day bring, you know, Dan in mm -hmm. for our China SME to have this conversation about, you know, how the two play off of each other. Uh, but how does that relationship play into Putin's uh, idea of where he wants uh, Russia uh, and in their strategic thinking. So I think, I, I guess I'm under the impression that Putin didn't give much regard to how China was going to respond 
to its um, invasion of Ukraine. Uh, you know, when it when it seized Crimea in 2014, when it held these bogus elections in the um, eastern part of Ukraine, he didn't get he didn't have trouble. So I think he wasn't expecting to have any major problems um, with a with a full scale invasion from from China. And in fact, he hasn't. He uh, Xi Jinping has been pretty diplomatic about the whole thing, and has kind of signaled at times that he didn't think that this was the best idea for Putin to have taken on. But he hasn't opposed Putin in a public way. Um, I think it would be a, I think it would be a, a great thing to ask Dan this question too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and from the opposite standpoint, you know, if China hasn't said anything or really not supported, some supported, uh, you know, the the invasion of Ukraine, would Russia support, not support, be quiet on uh, an invasion of Taiwan? Um, good question. Um, so I think they they I mean, he wouldn't say anything. I don't think he would uh, he wouldn't chide. China, um, he would be quiet, more quiet than not, but he, um, I mean, he wants to curry favor with Xi Jinping, so he would probably be supportive. Yeah, it also seems like, you know, whenever that actual invasion kicks off, if there still is a war in Ukraine, that would do nothing but help Russia in Ukraine if there's another focus, especially with the U.S. relationship with Taiwan. So that, that would be interesting whether or not he says anything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there would be another weakness. It, it would be another um, problem that the, that the West would have to deal with in a different arena, a different um, uh, AOR. And uh, it would just, it would, it would pull, pull people apart. With that, our time has come to a close, but I'd like to give an opportunity for any closing comments you might have. So I want to thank the Brute Krulak Center for sponsoring this. And thank you for the to the audience for the questions. I appreciate them. Even though we didn't get to every single question, I, I can um, see them. And I'm going to think about them and bring them to my classroom and, and let my students chew on them. Thank you so much for your attention and um, for your time today. I'll go ahead and uh, close it out. So, uh, Dr. Clement, thank you for your time uh, and your insight. I think we've led it into a, another broadcast with with you and Dan potentially. Uh, so, thank you for joining us. Um, thanks for all the folks who joined us today in the chat. We appreciate you sliding to the right based on the weather. Uh, and so, that's all we have for this episode. So, go ahead and carry out the plan of the day. Thanks for joining us. As always, we depend on support and feedback from the Team Krulak community to constantly improve our offerings and reach a wider audience. So if you have feedback on this episode, please take a moment to fill out the survey linked in the show notes to help us do better. Also, if you have enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button and subscribe to our channel on YouTube or leave us a review on the podcast app of your choice. It truly does help us reach a wider audience. Thank you as always for your support, and we'll see you on the next episode. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.